True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. The dog's been strangely quiet tonight, the girl thinks, as she settles down in her warm, safe bed. Its occasional bark has become the soundtrack of her life, and the sudden silence is unnerving. She's wondering if she should get up and check on him when she sees the man looming over her. He's tall and thin, but it's not his build that concerns her. It's the look in his eyes. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to Episode 70, Serial Offender, Ananias Marty. This episode is sponsored by Dialabed. I cannot tell you how many people have said that the podcast is like a sleep aid for them. Apparently it's not that I'm boring, but rather that I allegedly have a soothing voice. So if you're prone to listening to the podcast while you drift off into dreamland, you probably want to make sure that your bed is supporting a great night's sleep too. It's easy to forget about the little things that insulate us from all the craziness that goes on in the world. But there's a place that's your sanctuary, a place that makes you feel all safe and snuggled up, your bed. But it's not just a bed to you, is it? Beds aren't just a place we open our eyes every day. Beds are more than stitching and cushioning and coil springs. Beds are life and love. Dialabed understands the importance of comfort and makes every single bed with something special. Dialabed makes beds for rest and all the rest. Upgrade your bed today by visiting a Dialabed store or shopping online at dialabed.co.za. A huge thank you to Dialabed for supporting True Crime South Africa. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our new supporters for the week. A huge thank you goes out to CJ Barkhazen, Natasha Udendahl, Kungeka Lolwana, Francois Cronier, Tegan Hodges, Hugo LaRue, Leta Musa, Daniel van der Valt, and Natasha Msomi for your support on Patreon. If I ever miss anyone who contributes on Patreon, please do let me know because the platform's not great about listing new Patreon supporters every week. I'd also like to send out a very special birthday thank you to Jochemus Johannes Boerter. Happy birthday to you! Happy birthday to you! An enormous happy birthday to you from me and True Crime South Africa. Thank you so much for your support on PayPal. And I hope you have an amazing day and a fantastic birthday year. And thank you to everyone for your support. It really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave a link in the show notes. There are now additional ways that you can support the show, with two online businesses providing 10% discounts when you use the code TCSA10 at checkout. 
You can get your health and beauty needs at King Online, and you can get all your printing requirements designed, printed, and delivered by Print Crowd. You can also help to support me as an individual creator by checking out the companion podcast I created with Showmax for the Devil's Dorp documentary, or by purchasing the Krugersdorp Cult Killings audiobook on Audible, Google Play Books, or Apple Books. As always, any form of support is greatly appreciated, and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen, and interacting on social media all go a long way to keep the show growing and improving. You can also leave a review on the podcast app you use to listen. If your podcast platform does not have that option, a Google or Facebook review is equally helpful. The case I'm covering today is one that's been requested quite a few times. And I think that the notoriety of the offender comes pretty much solely from his actions outside of his main crimes, particularly the fact that he was the first person to escape one of South Africa's two super-maximum security prisons, which is the most secure-level correctional facility in the country. And that was not his first or his last escape attempt either. In researching this case, I got a bit of a weird feeling about how this criminal is viewed by much of the public. There's this Andre Stander-esque quality about him that doesn't sit well with me. If you haven't listened to my episode on Andre Stander, then maybe do so after this, and you'll understand what I mean. Some criminals, through the way they carry out their crimes, have this way of almost enamoring the public. They become Robin Hood-like figures, even though they certainly are not stealing from the rich and giving to the poor. In the Andres Stander episode, I put forward the fact that he was in fact a rapist of young girls, and at least in my eyes, was no hero at all. And I can't wait to blow the Ananias Mate legend out of the water too. So let's get into episode 70, Serial Offender, Ananias Mate. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Ananias Mate was born in 1976 to his father Zephanias Mate and his mother Sosira. Ananias and his ten siblings lived in Shai Mozambique. Mozambique is a neighbouring country to South Africa and shares a border which is separated at one point by another country, Swaziland or Eswatini. The two border crossings from South Africa into Mozambique are at Giriyondo in the Kruger National Park and Cozy Bay in KwaZulu-Natal. The year before Ananias was born, Mozambique regained its independence from previous Portuguese rule. As is the history of many African countries that were colonised in the past, when Portugal took control of the country in 1752, it would go on to leave an indelible stamp on the people of the country. Today, Portuguese culture has become melded with Mozambican culture, and this is evident in the language spoken, the food eaten, and many other aspects. 
The independence that came in 1975 was hard won with the Mozambican War of Independence, which started in 1964. The city in which the Mate family lived, Shai Shai, is set near the Indian Ocean and on the banks of the Limpopo River. After Mozambique gained its independence, tourism to the country and parts of Shai Shai in particular would increase dramatically, and for many residents of the area, this was their only form of income. Shai Shai, like many African and South American tourist spots, is a picture of the haves and the have-nots. On the one end you have resorts, tourists flashing cash and enjoying their holidays, and on the other, just out of sight, you have the villages in which people like the Mate family live on the breadline. Mozambicans, like many other neighbouring countries, have an extensive history of travelling into South Africa to seek work. Most immigrants working in South Africa leave their families behind in their home countries and send money home each month. This, of course, results in single-parent-headed households or children having to live with extended family and distant, sometimes non-existent relationships with parents who live thousands of kilometres away simply to be able to survive. While South Africans who work outside their home provinces find it easier to travel home once or twice a year to see their families, for the immigrants of neighbouring countries, the expense of the journey, the border conditions and sometimes the risk of being undocumented means that if they're lucky, they will see their family every few years. This scenario had been a generational feature of the Mate family, Ananias's father left Mozambique in 1957. He travelled to South Africa and set himself up there, leaving his young wife and first few children alone in Mozambique. Zephanias was able to find a job on the gold mines in South Africa, and when he was able to travel back to his family occasionally, his wife would often fall pregnant on these visits, and often Zephanias would not even meet his new son or daughter until they were two or three years old. As a result, none of the Mate children had a relationship with their father. To them, he was a memory, a phantom who drifted through their life, but one who they knew was a lifeline for their family. Without the money he sent each month, there would be no food and certainly no school. As it was, the Mate children mostly only ever expected to complete their primary school years, although their mother did wish that at least one of her children would complete their secondary schooling and perhaps get a higher-paying job in South Africa. Sadly, the future held a very different fate for the Mate children, and Zephaniah and Sasira would end up outliving ten of their eleven children. Ananias would say that as a child... He'd mostly kept to himself, despite having so many siblings. He preferred his own company, and when he was 12, he decided to leave school, he claims, because his teachers were beating him. He says he was afraid that his mother would also beat him for having dropped out, so he ran away from home. It is at this point that Ananias Mate claims he joined the Mozambican army. This would have been in 1988 
when although for all intents and purposes the actual armed conflict in the country was over, the Mozambican government was extremely guarded against future invasions and the army played a major role in the country's landscape. The army was not an ordinary military division. The armed conflict had resulted in the armed forces learning guerrilla tactics and at that time if you were a member of the Mozambican army you were essentially a highly trained deadly weapon. Now whether or not a 12 or 13 year old would have actually been able to join the army is a matter up for debate. Because really it wouldn't be unheard of in African countries. We know that in places like Rwanda children as young as seven have in the past been given weapons and taught to kill. So it's entirely possible that Ananias's story is true. In fact, this alleged military training would go on to become a large part of the man's story when his name started to hit the headlines in later life. There would be two people, though, who would claim they'd never known Ananias to be part of the military. One was his neighbour, who'd lived next door to the Mate family since the children were born, and the other was Mate's own brother. Now, I tend to think that the military tale is at least partially true, because Mate's eventual crimes and his later actions did seem to point to some form of military training. He would also become quite well connected with some members of organised crime groups in South Africa, and it would be understandable if those connections started with Ananias's guerrilla training years. Ananias claims that after joining the army, he was sent to Russia for training. He would claim that his formative years were not spent learning the rules of society from his parents, but rather learning how to fight and kill. When he was older, and apparently still serving in the army, Ananias would return home and reunite with his family. He described his relationship with his mother as tense. He would then go on to meet and marry two women, Elizabeth and Celeste. Although polygamy is prohibited in Mozambique, the law is not enforced, and according to a NORAD survey, a third of married Mozambican women are in polygamous marriages. Ananias's wives would describe him as a secretive man. With Mozambican culture still being highly patriarchal, the woman would not have been in a position to question their husband, and according to them, at least when he was still living with them, he gave them no reason to. They say that Ananias was not violent toward them or the children they would have with him. He didn't smoke, take drugs or drink and the family attended church regularly. In 1999, though, Ananias told his family he was leaving for South Africa. He felt he could earn more money here and better support his family, and so the generational circle began again with Ananias's eventual seven children, for the most part not knowing their father, just as he hadn't. For the most part, in the years that followed, he would visit the family each Christmas. During these visits, his wives would often fall pregnant, and he would briefly meet his new child at the next festive season visit. As a result, only his oldest son, Ananias Jr., ever had any significant memory of his father. 
for the Mate family left behind in Mozambique, the monthly money that Ananias sent seemed proof he'd settled down and started working. They could have no idea what the man was really up to. Ananias Mate's criminal career seems to have started almost as soon as he set foot in South Africa. He moved to Tembisa on the East Rand and started breaking into homes in neighbouring suburbs. For me, there's a significant difference between the type of criminal that specifically waits for a house to be empty before they break in and those that really don't care if there are people home. The latter type clearly have no problem using violence, and it makes me wonder if they're really after the items to steal, or if perhaps their house robberies are just the run-up to something far worse. Ananias Mate did not wait for the homes he broke into to be empty, and he regularly came up against the people living there. Between 1999 and 2003, his home invasions were violent. He regularly beat up residents. But in 2003, he escalated to rape, for what is believed to be the first time. It's at this point that I'd like to explain why you will not be hearing any personal information about the victims of Ananias Mate. Section 335A of the Criminal Procedure Act protects the identity of victims of sexual offences. According to this section, the identity of a victim of an alleged or proven sexual offence cannot legally be revealed by anyone, including the press or members of the public. This can only be overridden by a magistrate and would likely only happen if a victim of an alleged sexual offence is proven to have fabricated the claim. The victims themselves are at liberty to reveal their own identity if they wish to, but South African law does protect their right to remain anonymous. It is for this reason that media articles about sexual offences do not name victims, and also why you often will not find judgments for cases involving sexual offences on SAFLI. Sadly, this ruling had to be put in place because as a society, Although we've made great strides in this area, we are still unable to stop ourselves from victim-shaming victims of rape, and in many communities and cultures, there is still a great sense of shame attached to the crime. I look forward to a time when it is unnecessary for us to do this, but I also fully understand that when anyone has been through any kind of trauma, the last thing they want is, is for it to be attached to their name, forever in the public domain. When Ananias Mate broke into a home in Johannesburg in 2003 and found a 19-year-old girl on her own, he raped her. He was arrested soon after this, but released on bail, and he simply disappeared. Mate would be arrested again in April 2004 in Pretoria, and after claiming he hadn't understood that he had to appear in court, and hadn't intentionally evaded his court appearances, he was once again released on bail, which he again evaded. In January of 2005, when a traffic officer attempted to arrest him, he shot the officer, but was successfully detained. And it is at this point that it becomes clear that Marte is no ordinary criminal. 
Mate would escape from a high-security awaiting trial cell at Johannesburg Central Prison. This would start off his reputation as an alleged Houdini. But as the Sunday Times would later report, it seems Mate's skill at escaping had less to do with being crafty and much more to do with greasing the right palms. It is also through this crime that we learn that Mate was not the loner he claimed to be. He was, in fact, committing many of his crimes with a gang of other criminals, and when he was arrested in January 2005, his escape, the Sunday Times says, was actually facilitated by his gang paying a 15,000 rand bribe to prison officials. Although an investigation was launched into these claims by correctional services, no report was ever made public. And it's here that I already start to wonder how much of this Houdini legend was real and how much may have been created by a rather embarrassed correctional services who just wanted to keep the corruption in their department a secret. After all, it would be far better for the public to believe that this was just a criminal with unprecedented escape skills, rather than a man who had access to enough money to buy their cooperation. Either way, Ananias Mate was once again on the run, and the crimes he committed after this escape would be some of his most heinous. Mate would now go on a nine-month crime spree through four different provinces. He raped seven women in their homes, using knives and guns to subdue them, often slicing his victims' clothes off with a knife. He shot one victim through the door of her home when she caught him trying to break in. To gain entry to these properties, which were often guarded by dogs, Ananias would prepare slices of corned beef and spike them with aldicarb, which is a highly neurotoxic chemical. It is such a dangerous product that it has since been banned in more than 100 countries across the world. Mate would feed these spiked meats to the dogs at the homes he planned to target. During this spree, he killed 13 dogs in this manner. Ananias became a one-man crime wave in the area during this time hitting house after house in the same suburb on a single night, stealing cars, motorbikes, quad bikes, cell phones, laptops and televisions. On three consecutive nights in Limpopo, he broke into a total of 28 homes. Now, reading about this massive scale of crimes, and knowing that it has already been alluded to that Mate did not work alone, I actually find it quite difficult to believe that he pulled off all of this on his own. Sure, it's not impossible, but maybe this just serves to add to the mystique. This highly skilled criminal who could pull off so many robberies, rapes and attempted murders night after night and evade capture. I don't know so much about that. Ananias Mate would be arrested again in November of 2005, after he had raped yet another woman. He was detained in Pretoria's C-Max prison while awaiting trial for the 51 different charges against him at that time. C-Max prison, which is now called Khosi Mampur, is one of two super-maximum security prisons in South Africa. 
The other is Ibongweni Prison in Korkstad. These supermaximum facilities are reserved for the most violent offenders in South Africa, and they're also used to house problem offenders who have a history of starting riots or gang leaders. Often the heads of gangs will be moved to a supermax facility outside of their usual area of operation in an attempt to stem the flow of their influence. For Mate, his placement in this facility was a result of his previous escape, as well as his history of jumping bail. It would be here, at one of the most secure places in South Africa, that the legend of the Houdini prisoner would be born. Just a few days after Mate was incarcerated in the awaiting trial section of what was then Pretoria's CMAX prison, the unthinkable happened. He became the first person to escape the prison's super-maximum security measures. The country was stunned. The prison housed some of the most violent offenders in the country, serial killers, gang leaders, men who had committed atrocious deeds and been handed down lengthy sentences. Just how secure was this facility if this man had escaped? It's important to understand the facility, at least at the time, had different sections. Sentenced offenders are not held in the same area nor under the same conditions as awaiting trial prisoners. According to a 2010 report by Dikang Moseneke, the then Deputy Chief Justice, All inmates in CMAX have their own cell, with a bed, a small sink and a toilet. Sentenced offenders in sections A, B and C are kept in their cells for 23 hours a day. Meals are served in their cells, and offenders are allowed out of their cells for one hour a day, during which they go to a caged courtyard or to shower in cages. As far as I'm concerned, This seems to leave very little chance for escape. But awaiting trial prisoners are treated differently. They are not kept in their cells during the day, and they are free to roam between cells and the courtyard. Ananias Mate was an awaiting trial prisoner at the time of his escape. If the country was shocked that someone had managed to escape from CMAX, They would be even more amazed when the news broke of how Marte was claimed to have achieved this. It's alleged that Marte undressed, smeared his entire body with petroleum jelly, or Vaseline as we commonly know it, and then squeezed out of his cell window, which was 20 centimeters by 60 centimeters in size. At the time, prison officials said it appeared that Marte had broken through his cell window which to them seemed impossible, considering he only had a toothbrush, a mug and a spoon. He then allegedly broke off two steel bars from his bed, which he wedged on either side of the window to help him slide out. With another steel pipe, he allegedly made a hook, tied his clothes and bed linen together and attached it to the hook, which he then used to slide out of his window and down the firewall. Halfway down the wall, it was said that Mate had left a message for prison officials, scrawled in the dirt. It said, F you. Man, this is some James Bond stuff. 
And listening to that, you can almost start to understand how the legend of this man was born and bred into the public's mind. I mean, yes, he's a violent criminal, but how amazing was that escape, right? Hmm, there's more. Ananias Marte would thankfully be quickly recaptured on the 4th of December 2006, when he hijacked a car that he didn't realise was fitted with a tracking device. A private security company chased down the car and police joined the chase. Of course, they had no idea that their hijacker was one of the most wanted men on the continent. But when Marte had nowhere to go and he emerged from the car with his gun drawn, police opened fire and Marte was shot several times. He would survive. Four days after Marte was captured, a very different version of his escape emerged in an article published in the Sunday Times. And if I'm honest, this version sounds a lot less far-fetched to me. On the 10th of December 2006, the Sunday Times reported that they had evidence that Marte had not committed the lubricated escape of the century at all. In fact, he'd walked out the front door of CMAX prison after paying guards an 80,000 rand bribe. The paper alleged that as soon as the money was handed over, warders had unlocked Marte's door, removed his handcuffs and shackles, and looked the other way as he left the building. Now, where would a man like Marte, who'd allegedly only been sending his destitute family 100 rand a month, get 80,000 rand, you might ask? Well, according to the Sunday Times, as has been alluded to before, Marte was not the loner he described. In fact, he was the head of a cross-border crime syndicate, which operated from the village he'd lived in in Mozambique, across the border post into South Africa. The gang was allegedly highly militarised and used his home village as a base from which to organise crimes in South Africa. And this is where the money had come from. The Sunday Times had spoken to Marte's wives, who confirmed that they'd been told that their husbands, men, had paid the bribe to secure Marte's release. The women had been told by the gang members before they left the village that they would be returning with Marte. Three days later, they returned and said that Marte would be returning by bus from Johannesburg. Officials had been well aware that if Marte had managed to get back into Mozambique, he would be gone forever because the country has no extradition policy with South Africa. As a result, all of the border posts leaving South Africa were heavily guarded in the days after Marte's escape, and this had thwarted his plan to flee the country. He tried laying low, but needed a vehicle, and happened to hijack the wrong one, which led to him being rearrested. Now, I don't know about you, but this actually sounds a heck of a lot more realistic than someone smearing themselves with Vaseline using superhuman strength to dismantle a steel bed and breaking through a window with a toothbrush, all while pausing to write a salutation to his pursuers in dirt. It may well have sounded far more like the truth, but it wasn't a very convenient truth for correctional services, and so it was all swept under the proverbial rug. Of course, 
An investigation would be launched, but it would take a huge amount of pressure for correctional services to eventually admit that six warders had in fact been dismissed as a result of their involvement in Marte's escape from CMAX. These dismissals, though, were painted as simple derelictions of duty. The warders had left their posts, or been distracted by a football match, they claimed. There was never any mention of the fact that a bribe had in fact exchanged hands, and that the involvement of these warders was far more than just being distracted on the job. Essentially, according to Correctional Services' version, Marte really did lube himself out of prison. But the fact remains that they fired six people for this. Did all six people really become distracted all at the same time, just at the right time for Marte? Did they all just happen to not do their job on that very same night? Or was the so-called distraction actually the wads of cash that were in their pockets? The fact remains that Marte's wives had no reason to lie about their knowledge of a bribe. In fact, for them and their children, it would have been far better to deny any knowledge at all and go along with the claim that their husband was some Houdini. But they didn't. And as far as I'm concerned, that says a lot about what really happened. To be honest, the only question I'm left with about the bribe scenario is that If Marte got it right, why have no other prisoners tried that? Surely there are more prisoners in supermax security facilities with access to that type of cash, and far more. Was Marte just lucky enough to find the right six warders who were willing to be bought? I'd like to believe that in any of our institutions, the large majority of people work there because they're committed to the job, and it is a select few that are the bad apples. But if Marte managed to achieve this, has enough changed in our prison since then that this type of escape is no longer possible, or is it just a matter of time? After healing from his gunshot wounds and a 24-hour guard in hospital, Marte was eventually brought to trial for a charge sheet that had grown to 71 charges. His victims testified in closed court about how their lives had been changed by Marte's actions. One young girl who'd been raped described the PTSD she suffered, which was triggered by the smell of sweat, which reminded her of how Marte had smelled that night. Three of Marte's victims had left South Africa after being raped by him, and dog owners broke down on the stand as they described the suffering their beloved pets had endured after being poisoned by Marte. These cruelty-to-animal charges were also included on his charge sheet. To add some additional mystery to an already strange case, two police officers died under mysterious circumstances while investigating Marte's case, and two witnesses who'd been very keen to testify against him suddenly disappeared off the face of the earth. Psychologists testifying for the defense described Marte's childhood and explained that he had an antisocial personality disorder. He said that Marte had no concept of what it was like to live in a normal society, and he only understood violence as a means of getting through his life.
His defence attorney claimed that he had indeed showed remorse for his crimes, a claim which the judge immediately rejected. In 2009, Ananias Mate was found guilty of 67 of the 71 charges against him. He smiled at the judge as she described him as a vicious and abnormal human being who was a dangerous, hardened criminal. She further said that she did not believe that there was any chance of rehabilitating the man. In total, the sentences handed down to him equaled more than 100 years, but as these were concurrent, he would be required to serve 54 years in jail, and the judge ordered that he should not be eligible for parole before he had served 43 years. Everyone now wondered which of South Africa's two super-security jails would house the infamous escape artist, and soon it became clear that authorities were taking no chances. After his sentencing, Ananias Mate was taken by helicopter to CMAX Pretoria, where he collected his belongings. He was then taken to a nearby airfield, where a privately chartered plane transported him to Mbongweni Supermax Prison in Kokstadt. If you're wondering why the star treatment, well, clearly authorities were now well aware, although they wouldn't admit it, that Mate was not operating alone. And if they transported him by road, it was very possible that the convoy could be attacked and Mate could escape again. Of course, this should be the end of Ananias Mate's story, but he wasn't about to let his so-called legend die. In 2013, Ananias Mate attempted to dig through the wall of his cell in Kokstadt prison. He was caught by a warder, but even if he had managed to get all the way through, he would have only found himself in the cell next door. Three years later, in September 2016, a warder spotted broken glass on the floor of Mate's cell. Upon investigation, it emerged that the prisoner had somehow managed to pull away part of the steel frame on his window and had started slowly shattering it. He apparently planned to tie his clothes and bedsheets together and descend out the window that way. Without paying a bribe, though, even if Mate had managed to get out of the window, he would have been faced with three barbed wire fences and one electric fence, as well as the guards on towers that watch the entire area. Reporters from Times Live were invited to the prison to witness a search operation held in the facility after Mate's attempted escape. The journalists described how sniffer dogs filled the premises. Each inmate was individually strip-searched and then chained outside their cell while police searched it. Everything was torn apart. They were certainly not taking any chances that Mate would disappear on their watch. In a statement which seemed to reflect some level of admission of the truth behind Mate's escapes, one politician said, quote, These incidents of escape point not to Mr. Mate's ingenuity or Houdini-like abilities, but rather to the depressing reality that offenders with large amounts of money made from the proceeds of crime can bribe their way out of most situations, end quote. That may well be true, but if it is, why didn't it happen in Korkstadt? 
Soon after his final escape attempt, Ananias Mate began to look very unwell. Unfortunately for him, his history meant that prison officials were very sceptical when he claimed to be feeling sick, and for a month he was treated on prison premises. Then, when prison health officials realised that the man was actually not passing any urine or bowel movements, he was taken under heavy guard to the hospital. He would undergo two operations during this time, and even when surgeons were cutting him open, nothing was left to chance, and the surgery was guarded by armed men. It soon became evident, though, that Marte had come to the end of his life, and on the 27th of December 2016, Correctional Services released a press statement confirming that Ananias Marte had in fact died. Quote, it is confirmed that Marte died yesterday afternoon at 4.30pm at King Edward Hospital. His family have been notified and we've also asked officials to alert the consular office of Mozambique. End quote. Even in death, though, no one really trusted Ananias. And correctional services officials actually guarded his body up until the point that it was handed over to his family. The Mate family struggled to get together the money needed to transport the man's body back to Mozambique, but they were eventually able to do so with the help of a policeman who donated money to the cause. Perhaps he wanted to see the back of Mate as much as anyone else. Ananias Mate was laid to rest in his hometown in Mozambique. His coffin was surrounded by his mother, his two wives, his seven children, two grandchildren, and about 200 neighbours. The self-proclaimed loner seemed to have attracted quite a crowd. Although many may prefer to continue to believe the legend of the C-Max Houdini, I'm not one of them. I think there were many things we didn't know about Ananias Mate. I think he was a far more prolific criminal than we even realise, and he was certainly no lone house robber and rapist. Ananias Mate changed the lives of countless people through his violence. His victims have had to live with the legacy of pain he has given to them. His children and grandchildren have to live with the spectre of the person who they knew so little about, but who is so widely known for all the wrong reasons. I hope that all those whose lives were negatively impacted by this man have been able to heal, at least partially, and continue on to live their lives, so that this man will never again steal a second of their joy and peace. I'd like to close out this episode by reading a piece of an article written by journalist Matthew Savides, who met and interviewed Martin Jail, because I think it describes exactly who this man was. Ananias Marte looks over his right shoulder, his lips pursed as he smiles almost cheekily. He's wearing his orange prison-issue jumpsuit and has metal chains around his waist as he stands in his cell at the Kokstadt C. Max prison. This picture, taken by multiple award-winning photographer Tuli Dlamini, was probably the last ever snapped of Mate, who died in a Durban hospital on Tuesday. The picture is haunting, and I know why. 
Betsy's eyes. They were the first thing I noticed about the Mozambican national when I met him for the first time. I don't scare easily, and I didn't feel any unease as I walked into the cold, echo-filled bowels of C-Max until our gazes met as he looked out of his cell on a rainy morning in March 2015. My blood instantly ran cold. It's his eyes. There's something dark and insidious, dare I say evil, about them. If the eyes are in fact a window to the soul, I don't want to know the story Martes would tell. When he was convicted in December 2009 on 67 charges including rape, indecent assault, attempted murder, aggravated robbery and housebreaking, the judge described his behaviour as vicious. Vicious. It seems an entirely appropriate word. I interviewed Marte that March morning. He denied doing anything wrong, even though it was blatantly obvious he had just a few months earlier tried to escape from his cell. He complained about being bored and doing nothing. He said he wanted to be moved back to another prison, but not to Cape Town. He didn't say why. He said he was hungry, and he moaned about the food and the mealtimes. Tuli and I went into the prison again in October this year, just weeks after he tried to escape for a second time. The same haunting eyes met us. When Tuli asked him to pose for a photo with just his eyes looking through the gap in his cell door, his reply was terse. Go away. You just want to make money out of me. We wanted to go back in early 2017 and take Marte lunch, talk to him, find out what makes him tick. We won't ever get that chance. It would have made a great story, and for that I am disappointed. But there is a part of me that's glad I won't ever have to look in those eyes again. Thank you for listening to Episode 70, Serial Offender, Ananias Marty. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to the show on the platform you're using to listen. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I'll be back next Friday with another episode. Until then, as always, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon.